This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Quicksilver. It's funny, isn't it, how certain completely fictional fantasy things take on a life of their own such that fans of two completely different fantasy worlds have common grounds to discuss some pretty outlandish things. Whether you play video games or tabletop role-playing games or watch movies, you know, for example, what an orc is. Sure, the details vary a bit from place to place, but orcs are pretty much orcs. And strangely, this extends to some pretty strange places. Most fantasy fans, for example, share a sort of periodic table of fantasy elements. Sure, you might call it adamantine, or adamantite, or adamantium, or just adamant, but you know what it is. The same goes for mithril, however you spell it. Or orichalcum, or is it orichalcon? But what's even more interesting is that there's also a shared lexicon of entirely mundane, real materials that everyone knows also as magical fantasy properties. And some of those materials have built up their mystical properties for centuries, even millennia. Take, for example, sulfur. Sulfur is a fairly mundane chemical element. In fact, it's pretty common, very common. It's the 10th most common element in the entire universe and the 11th most common element in the human body. In its natural form, sulfur is a bright yellow crystal or a yellow powder, and it commonly occurs near volcanic craters and vents. In fact, volcanoes spew out so much sulfur that Jupiter's volcanic moon Io is permanently stained yellow by this stuff. Sulfur is also very reactive. It loves to combine with other stuff, especially oxygen. And if you remember our episode long, long ago about the tinderbox, you might remember that combining with oxygen is another name for burning. Yes, sulfur is extremely flammable. That's why it's used in match heads and why the Chinese used it as the basis for gunpowder in the 7th century CE. Apart from combining with oxygen and burning away, sulfur will mix with just about anything. On Earth, there are over 1,000 different natural minerals that contain sulfur. Gypsum, for example, which is used to make plaster, wallboards like sheetrock, and also widely used as a fertilizer? That's calcium and sulfur. And have you ever heard of fool's gold? It's a metal that looks like gold, and many prospectors and miners have been fooled into thinking it is gold. But it's not gold. It's actually something called iron pyrite. And it is basically just iron and sulfur. Sulfur is also responsible for some particularly strong odors. It's the reason matches smell so funky. But it also serves as the basis for a particular form of chemicals called thiols. Thiols are present in garlic and onions and also human sweat and some animal urines. Skunks produce thiols in their anal scent glands and those are what give its spray their terrible odor. Rotting foods, for example rotten eggs, emit thiols as well. And because of its association with rotten food, humans have adapted to be very sensitive to the smell of thiols. That's why thiols are added to natural gas when they are pumped into people's homes and appliances. See, natural gas is odorless and colorless in its natural form, but it is also flammable, and it will eventually asphyxiate you if it is, say, leaking out of your oven and filling your home. So utility companies add thiols to allow you to smell a gas leak. 
just how sensitive are humans to thiols and how smelly can they get? Well, imagine if you spilled a jar of something and the smell was so awful that you immediately started retching and vomiting uncontrollably and didn't stop until you passed out from the overpowering odor. And imagine if that happened to people up to half a mile away. Because that is exactly what happened in 1967 when researchers spilled a vial of a chemical called thioacetate at the Essor Research Station in Abingdon in the United Kingdom. And it wasn't the first time either. In 1889, scientists working with thioacetate for the first time discovered that an epidemic of fainting, vomiting, and panicked evacuation spread over the town of Freiburg, Germany. And in 1890, at the Whitehall Soap Works in Leeds in England, a stopper was accidentally removed from a bottle of thioacetate for a few moments before being replaced, and that was enough to cause nausea and vomiting in a building two football pitches away. But as interesting as all of that is, we're talking about the fantastic here, not the mundane. And sulfur has long been associated with the supernatural, specifically with divine wrath. It's just that it goes under another name. Perhaps you heard of brimstone, as in fire and brimstone. Let's see if we can jog your memory. Once upon a time, according to the Bible, the Torah, and the Koran, there were these five cities in the land of Canaan. The land sits just north of the Dead Sea. They were called Adma, Zeboam, Bela, Sodom, and Gomorrah. According to the various scriptures, God became aware that people were speaking very badly of two of these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. People said that it was impossible to find so many as ten honest men in those cities. The people were guilty of grievous sins. And so, God commanded some of his angels to investigate. When the angels, disguised as men, searched the city of Sodom, they met a man named Lot. Now, Sodom was a xenophobic city that did not allow foreigners inside the city walls at night. And when Lot saw that these two men intended to sleep on the streets to pass the night, he took pity on them and offered them shelter. But a mob of Sodomites discovered Lot was sheltering strangers. They surrounded his house and demanded the strangers. And what happened next is open to some debate. And it comes down to a translation of a Hebrew idiom. According to the common retelling, the mob attempted to sexually assault the two strangers. The men then revealed that they were, in fact, angels sent there to determine whether this city needed to be destroyed. And God was about to do just that. Lot was spared, but the rest of the city was burned in a great hail of fire and brimstone. Now the reason for the debate comes down to what the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah actually were that earned them a divine, fiery raising. The word sodomy has been passed down to us from that story and used to refer to depraved sexual activity. It has been assigned to everything from intercourse with animals to homosexuality. And, in fact, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is the cornerstone of the belief by some religious adherents that homosexuality is a grievous sin. But some scholars point out that the line in which the mob announces their plans to sexually assault the strangers can also be translated as the mob demanding that Lot show them who he is hiding. 
And that comes down to the word no, or rather the Hebrew word for no. You've heard folks say to know someone in the biblical sense. The phrase generally means to have had sexual relations with someone, because that no was Hebrew slang for sex. But it was also just the word for knowing someone. The whole issue is hotly debated by theological scholars, some of whom point to later passages in various scriptures outlining the sins of Sodom as being spoiled, selfish, and unkind, and refusing to care for fellow humans, much like the young prince at the start of Beauty and the Beast. But we digress. But, why are we talking about brimstone when the word of the week is quicksilver? Well, quicksilver or mercury to give it its proper name, has some surprisingly strong connections to brimstone, to sulfur. And it's not just because they are chemical elements that have been given fancy nicknames and have been ascribed mystical properties. These two elements have been tied together since their discovery, and they have danced an elaborate dance together throughout the history of human science. And, if we're going to discuss the history of human science, we're going to have to talk a little bit about alchemy. Again. What happened was this. When alchemy became increasingly widespread in Europe during the late medieval period, as we discussed in our previous episode, sulfur became one-third of a very important triumvirate of mystical materials. Sulfur was thought to be a unity of air and fire, and it became associated with the human soul. See, alchemy wasn't just about chemistry. There was a very important doctrine in alchemy, the doctrine of the microcosm. That comes from the word micro meaning small, and cosmos meaning everything that exists. The doctrine states simply, as above, so below. And the doctrine is supposedly drawn from one of the first writings on alchemy ever to exist, the Emerald Tablet of Hermes Trismegistus. We say supposedly because the first recorded reference to it was an Arabic compilation of mystic writings. The idea behind as above, so below is simple. Everything in the universe follows the same basic laws as everything else. And if you understand the way small things work, you also learn about how larger things work. And vice versa. And as a result of that idea, alchemists became fixated on the idea of correspondences. Substances could be understood by their elemental qualities, but those qualities were also associated with certain planets, which were also associated with certain body parts, times of the year, and ailments. So alchemy became strongly associated with astrology and with theology and spirituality. Sulfur, the essence of fire and air, corresponded with the human soul. A second essence, salt, was seen as a distillation of water and earth, and it corresponded with the physical human body. And the third essence, corresponding with water and air, was associated with the animating force of life itself. And that was quicksilver. Mercury. And it was believed that those three alchemical essentials, salt, sulfur, and mercury, formed the basis for almost all useful medicines. But what is mercury? Mercury is a silvery metallic element that is a liquid at normal temperatures. In fact, it's a metal, a liquid metal, and it flows and runs and blobs up in fascinating ways. If you've ever seen the second entry in James Cameron's classic sci-fi action film series Terminator, you've seen Mercury in action. 
If you haven't seen it, we'll give you a quick recap. But don't settle for our recap. Go see Terminator and Terminator 2. They're fantastic. In the Terminator series, the military builds a supercomputer called Skynet. Skynet goes berserk and destroys most of the Earth with nuclear missiles. After that, Skynet's robots set about finishing the job by killing off the remaining pockets of humanity. The human resistance is led by a heroic leader named John Connor. Skynet gets frustrated fighting the rebels, and so it sends a robot disguised as a human back in time to kill John's mother, Sarah Connor, before she can give birth to him. That's the first movie. In the second movie, Skynet sends another, more advanced robot back in time to kill a teenage John Connor. That robot, the Terminator T-1000, is composed of liquid metal. It can assume any form, disguise itself as human, morph its hands into blades, flow under doors, and reform itself when it becomes damaged. And the flowing, gelatinous, silvery metal puddles of T-1000 seen throughout the movie? Those were Mercury. We're not sure when humans discovered Mercury. It appears to have been discovered in China and India before 2000 BCE, and it was also in use in Egypt in 1500 BCE. In Latin, Mercury is called Hydrogyrum, from the word hydro, meaning water, and argentum, meaning silver. So the name literally means liquid silver. But it is also more commonly known by another name, Quicksilver. And that comes from an old meaning for the word quick. Quick used to mean alive. Quickening means to bring to life. So mercury was long known as living silver. Because of this association with life, Quicksilver has long been attributed with healing properties. It was used as a medicine in Tibet, China, and Egypt. In fact, the first emperor of China, Qin Shi Huangdi, was obsessed with this stuff, and with immortality. He wanted to live and rule forever. He tasked his ministers and alchemists with making that happen. He sent voyages across the world searching for potions of eternal life. But despite his efforts, his health began to decline. And so he decided to settle for the next best thing. If he couldn't rule forever on Earth, he would rule from the spirit realm forever. And so he commissioned a tomb fit for an eternal emperor, an underground palace, and the construction of his palace became a thing of great legend. Supposedly, 700,000 men worked on his tomb. They built offices, stables, receiving halls, underground towers, and even underground scenic landscapes. The tomb was guarded by magical soldiers, terracotta statues, that would come to life and serve the emperor. And through the tomb, there flowed rivers of quicksilver. See, somewhere in the tomb, supposedly, there was a model of all of China. And the rivers, lakes, and seas were filled with quicksilver. Crazy, right? Well, in 1974, farmers digging in the Shanxi province of northern China actually discovered the emperor's actual tomb and excavations revealed the legends weren't that far off. The tomb was a massive palatial labyrinth filled with offices and receiving halls and stables. Over 8,000 richly painted terracotta statues of soldiers and horses and chariots were discovered. 
But the central chambers of the main tomb, those remain sealed. Archaeological scholars and the Chinese government have thus far refused to break into the sealed central chambers, citing the fact that current technology may be insufficient to ensure the protection of any relics and remains, especially the remains of the first emperor himself. Is there a chamber with a model of China and Quicksilver rivers? Well, we can't be sure. But detailed studies of soil and rock samples in 1981 and 2003 have concluded that the ground seems to be contaminated with large amounts of mercury. But it isn't just the alchemical correspondences that tie quicksilver and brimstone together. Interestingly enough, if not for sulfur, it would be much more difficult to find mercury. See, most mercury found on Earth isn't actually found as pure mercury. It's actually found bound up in a mineral called cinnabar. Cinnabar is a bright red crystal composed of mercury and sulfur, and it was discovered as far back as the Neolithic Age. By itself, cinnabar is an extremely useful bright red pigment or dye. And if you've ever heard of a pigment called vermilion, which is also called China Red, that color was first produced in China from cinnabar. But we no longer use cinnabar to make it because, as it turns out, the mercury fumes are toxic. Anyway, if you roast cinnabar in a furnace, the sulfur burns away and the mercury evaporates into a silvery vapor. Catch and cool the vapor and you have mercury. To this day, cinnabar remains the primary source of refined mercury, and the vast majority of cinnabar and mercury come from Spain. But there's one more connection between mercury and sulfur, and that connection finished off alchemy once and for all. See, all the elements have some pretty specific properties. Take sulfur for example. Sulfur likes to react with anything, including itself and including oxygen. In fact, in reactions it behaves in ways that are very similar to the way oxygen behaves itself. And the key to understanding these properties and the similarities between elements lies in the atomic theory of matter. All matter is composed of atoms. An atom is the smallest amount of an element you can have. Imagine you have a block of iron, say. Cut it in half. Cut it in half again. Keep cutting it in half. Eventually, you'll get down to a single atom of iron. And that atom is still iron. It still behaves like iron and has all the properties of iron. But if you cut that last atom, you don't have iron anymore. Atoms are composed of two basic parts. At their center is a very, very tiny nucleus. And the nucleus is made up of tiny parts called protons and neutrons. The nucleus of the atom is surrounded by a cloud of tiny electrons. And it's the protons and the electrons that determine the properties of an element. First, the number of protons in the nucleus determines what actual element you are dealing with. If there's one proton, it's hydrogen. If there's six, it's carbon. Eight gets you oxygen. Sulfur has 16. And mercury has 80 protons. The number of protons is called the atomic number. In general, an atom left on its own will have as many electrons as protons. 
That's because protons and electrons attract each other. They have equal but opposite electric charges. The nucleus has a positive charge due to all of the protons. A cloud of electrons will swarm around it, each one with a negative charge. When there are as many positive as negative charges, everything is in balance. Now, you might remember from our alchemy episode that Democritus of ancient Greece theorized that all matter was made of atoms. And his contemporaries, especially Aristotle and Socrates, dismissed the idea as heresy and put forth their own theory about the four elements of air, fire, water, and earth. And that became the basis for philosophical alchemy, and that incorrect idea stuck around for a long time. But then, in 1773, an English chemist named Joseph Priestley was playing around with cinnabar, and he observed something no one had really thought about much. When you burn cinnabar, you got mercury, sure, but you also got something else. Another gas came out of it. He didn't know it at the time, but it was sulfur. He also observed that the mercury vapor, if burned, would condense into a reddish-orange powder. It turns out the mercury was mixing with oxygen to produce mercuric oxide. He postulated that this stuff wasn't transmutation. What he was actually seeing was that cinnabar was somehow made of two ingredients, mercury and something else. And that mercury could be mixed with a different something else to produce a different mineral. His work was refined by Antoine Lavoisier in 1778, who also gave oxygen its name. In 1803, an English scientist named John Dalton combined this work with other earlier work on the behavior of gases and put forth the theory that all compounds consist of combinations of atoms, small units of pure substances. But that's just the basic idea. There's elements like mercury and sulfur, or like hydrogen and oxygen, and their atoms combine to create compounds like cinnabar or water. And you can break compounds apart easily using a variety of chemical processes or combine them into different compounds. But the elements themselves don't change. Mercury can go from cinnabar to mercuric oxide by heating and then heating again, but the mercury is still mercury, the sulfur is still sulfur, and the oxygen is still oxygen. But every element seems to have some pretty picky rules about what other elements it will combine with. Sulfur will combine with lots of things. Something like sodium combines with just about anything. And neon pretty much won't mix with anything. Why? And why do some elements seem so similar? Why do oxygen and sulfur like to combine with the same things? Once atoms and elements were discovered, lots of scientists were trying to figure out just that. It was clear there was some kind of pattern, but no one could figure out what it was. No one, that is, until the Russian chemist Dmitry Mendeleev came along. Mendeleev looked at two things, the weights of various elements and their unique properties. He began by putting them in weight order on a table, lining up the columns based on similar properties but he also discovered that the weight order didn't quite match up the properties quite right. Why not? Well, remember, at this point, no one knew about protons and neutrons. Atoms were just a vague idea. 
and the weight of a substance is based on both its number of protons and its neutrons. Different elements have different numbers of neutrons, and different samples of the same element can have different numbers of neutrons. That means that the weight of an element doesn't correspond exactly with its atomic number, but it's relatively close. Mendeleev ordered the elements based on their weights, but then he posited that there was some sort of invisible underlying property he couldn't see. So he was willing to move things around. Gradually, he discovered a way of organizing the elements so that the different rows and columns would have similar properties. And he purposely left holes where he guessed undiscovered elements should go. And so, he invented the periodic table of elements. The periodic table organizes the elements. Currently, there are 118 elements on the table, but many of the largest ones do not occur in nature. They can only be created in laboratories. The elements are in the order of their atomic number, their number of protons, and different groupings such as rows, columns, and areas on the table tell us different things about the properties of the elements. For example, the reason why sulfur and oxygen react in such similar ways they sit in the same column, the same period on the table. They have very similar properties. What's most interesting is that Mendeleev developed a periodic table without knowing the underlying reason for the properties. But it turned out he had made some remarkable guesses. Years later, when it was discovered that it is the number of electrons in the cloud that determines how elements react and that the electrons organize themselves into complex orbits, the properties of the elements on the table made sense. Oxygen and sulfur react in similar ways because they both have a similar certain imbalance in the number of their electrons. But if you want to know more about that, you'll have to go back to our discussion of electron custody battles in our episode about glue. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by The Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. <laughs>